millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi and as the editor Stig Abel continues to elude us, I'm joined by the TLS's arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> so, so polite. I'm so, so polite. <laughs> um, if you are toying with the idea of becoming a subscriber to the TLS, here is an offer to consider. Five issues for just £5 or £5. If that appeals and you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. In this week's episode, diversity in publishing is getting better in terms of the figures at least. But what about the quality? As the hashtag publishing so white continues to shame publishers into action, Colin Grant joins us to discuss some of the anxieties and complexities involved. One former British poet laureate, Andrew Motion, considers the work of another former British poet laureate, William Wordsworth. But is Wordsworth fun? Andrew Motion will be on the line to give his verdict. And finally, fittingly, we'll end with a moving new poem, Turned Down by Kate Miller, plucked from the pages of this week's TLS. In 1943, the BBC World Service began a new literary programme, Caribbean Voices, with the aim of showcasing diverse literary talents. By the time it came to an end in 1958, our culture was richer. We had V.S. Naipaul, Derek Walcott, John Figueroa, Kamau Braithwaite. Presided over by the patrician editor Henry Swansea, Colin Grant explains in an essay in this week's TLS, the programme had provided a platform and importantly money, a guinea per minute of broadcast material, for burgeoning authors in the Caribbean, many of whom made their way to London to the great seat of empire, where their work would be judged to metropolitan standards. Or so they thought... The So They Thought is what we're here to talk about today, because the legacy of unequal treatment is, Colin Grant suggests, still with us now. The change, it seems, hasn't quite come, or perhaps not in the way we might have hoped. In Britain, more writers of colour are being published than ever before. There are dedicated publishing imprints, anthologies and new writers. There are prizes. But is there still something a little patronising about it all? Colin Grant joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Colin. Hello, Thea. Um, There's a lot to get through here because there's a question of how and why a book is made and then there's the matter of its reception, uh, how to judge it and so on. So 
on the surface, at least, it seems like a good time to be a black writer. There's an awareness, there are initiatives and so on. But what do you think is going on below the surface? I think people in the publishing world are trying to make amends for the fact that people of my perplexion have been barred, more or less, or not encouraged to publish work in the past. And so there's a kind of embarrassment. And, and so to make up for that, make up for the transgressions of the past, the doors have been widely opened. But also, I think the requirements for the kind of quality of writing that I would like to see written has been lowered somewhat. And I think it's understandable. And I think it always happens when you have a, a group of people, whether they be women or people of colour, who have 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 felt excluded in the past and some enlightened people come around and they say well we must um, we must make amends for that and in the initial throughput of of writers maybe the quality isn't as great as it will be by the time this initial uh hike jacking up of the numbers of people who have been pushed to the door comes to an end well i suppose so well we'll come to the quality side of things in a minute but i suppose before that we need to get to the numbers, why there are more. And so we can say concretely that there, you know, a number of the main publishing houses now have these dedicated imprints. And there seem to be sort of two ways of of diversifying publishing lists, one far more expensive than the other. Well, and there's problems with, with both approaches. So the first, you've kind of got the use of celebrity, mm-hmm. which you mentioned. You mentioned there's there's a new imprint at Penguin, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that's headed up by Stormzy. So that there we've got a kind of problem that we're recruiting a famous person to do a, a job because that in itself sort of promotes an idea of exceptionalism, doesn't it? It does. I think Stormzy's great, though, and I think Stormzy has a good heart and a good eye, and I think some of the work that he's actually curating and bringing in is pretty good. It's some of the other work that I don't find so attractive, personally. And I think also, practically, you know, publishers are in the business of making money so mm-hmm. if you can have a celebrity who draws attention to this failing and wants to make amends wants to push a certain kind of writing then that's in itself good uh, the bottom line is that is the work any good yeah i suppose uh, i suppose with the stormzy thing I'm, I'm wondering why not give the job to someone who's already working in that field who will have done all of those years of of graft that's a very good question thea and it's one you should put to the people who are putting out these imprints i put it to them they are a little bit dismissive of the question. And mm. um, the problem is that even posing the question suggests a kind of prejudice. So it's a difficult question to pose because there are black editors out there who exactly. could equally do or who could do a much better job, actually. They're not being approached. And I remember when I, when I was sort of midway through my time at the BBC, there was a man called John Burt, and I'm sure I can say this without any fear of censure, who said that sometimes experience was an impediment to success. He didn't want too much experience. And I think that's what's going on in some of these publishing worlds. They actually seem to shy away from people who've got experience because they want more manageable, inexperienced people, perhaps. Maybe that's a cynical way of seeing it, but that's what the impression I get from it. Interestingly, you, you mentioned the word experience there. That's something that the, the, another thing that we're seeing a lot of now is the proliferation of anthologies. And these sort of elevate experience without necessarily mediating or editing or, or doing the work. You mean experience in the sense of their life experience, but, but yeah. crucially not the sort of experience that Colin's talking about, i.e. 
20 years editing, writing, commissioning, honing all that side of things. Yeah, exactly. I teach creative writing at Arvon, and I always say to my students, experience is not enough. Mm-hmm. Your life experience is not enough. You've got to make it interesting. Mm. You've got to make it intriguing. You've got to make it entertaining. And you've got to hone your skills in order to tell those stories. And I think sometimes I feel that inexperienced people are being given opportunities without there being enough curating, without there being enough duty of care towards their writing so that they will grow as writers, so that their craft will be improved. And if you give someone uh, a platform too early before they're ready and they fail, then they're not going to get another gig. And that's happened in the past, no matter what colour you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to be happening a lot with certain, some black writers. There's an intersection with working class writers as well. I know you uh, reviewed for me not that long ago an anthology, again, an anthology of working class writers. And there's this problem of ghettoising is a strong word, especially in the context, but of just of putting people in, in a particular frame there. And there's yeah. a risk that you're kind of reducing people to their social signifiers. Yeah, that's true. I think in their defence, though, some of these publishers are recognising that they have difficulty finding readers. And one way of finding readers is to find readers who read blogs or to find readers who have got an association with some person who's got a website. And so that's a kind of route to find potential readers who maybe once they're in and they're reading these books, they'll, they'll migrate onto other books. So I kind of appreciate the fact that there is a blockage in terms of getting readers in, and there seems to be some impediment. But partly that blockage is to do with the fact that there aren't a lot of black writers who have been published in the past. And so why, why would you look to the catalogue of Penguin or Bloomsbury if you're a black writer, if you're a black reader, if you didn't have any expectation of finding black writers there? And um, also, I suppose, to go back to the point about what you're saying about blogs, I think in your piece you're saying that this is not to sort of downgrade any of the writing that's on there, but it's a different medium. So yeah. so you can write a brilliant blog or you can do indeed a brilliant three-minute video, but that's not the same as a thoughtful, long-form essay, which is difficult, or or a book or a novel or any of those things. It just takes a long time, takes a lot of work. I think that's very true. And therefore, you have rather thin thinly thought through pieces that are being given book length treatments and it, it, it shows in the reading I mean I've, I've been receiving books and I would just throw them to the one side of the room they're so thin physically and intellectually and that does the writers a disservice I think. You mentioned this before I'm really interested in this whether in a sense it's, this is an inevitable transitional phase. In your piece, you talk to a, a, a wide range of, of writers, publishers and other in, uh, you know, industry professionals. And Charmaine Lovegrove at Dialogue Books, which is uh, an imprint at Little Brown, there's this theory that you mentioned before of, of there being this being part of a broader atmosphere of shame and, and embarrassment, yeah. which sort of suggests that this is a necessary historical thing we've kind of got to go through this Mm. well in a way it kind of borders on positive discrimination um i suppose i would say there's a role for reversing discrimination and you could argue that actually people have been discriminated against in the past and been excluded in the past but what criteria do you now use in order to give them entrance into these uh, publishing worlds and i start the piece by saying that i still carry the shame of my first major rejection when the agent whose name I won't mention rejected me because he didn't have any interest in ethnic writing 
So there are these domain assumptions uh, that we have to interrogate um, on the part of the publishers, I suppose, on the part of the agents. And maybe to try to get around those domain assumptions, this is why the certain publishers have, have put out these imprints, perhaps. This is not the first time. I and mean, as I say, my piece, uh, Diana Atkill was very aware of this in the 1950s. And you mentioned at the top of the program, this program, Caribbean Voices. And I interviewed people, because I made a documentary about the, the history of Caribbean Voices, and I interviewed this man who's mentioned in my feature, John Figueroa, who said that the same thing happened, that the white critics lowered their standards for the expectation of the writing of the black writers. He found that rather patronising, but also he found it diminishing. It reduces, it lowers your own expectations about what you need to do in order to write, in order to get published. Mm, well, there's a clear sense of it being counterproductive. Yeah. Um, there's, you, you mentioned in your piece as well, uh, Sharmila Bezmohun, who works at somewhere called Speaking Volumes. Yes, it's, it's a literary agency called Speaking Volumes. And um, Shamila, Nick and Sarah have been instrumental in promoting quality black writing for quite a few years, actually. They put out a booklet not so long ago that has almost 200 writers there. Um, so there is some really good writing going along. But as with everything, I suppose, you have to have something that will appeal to the writers, to appeal to the publishers beyond your writing. It seems to be the case for everybody, really, doesn't it? And I should qualify by saying that whenever I get into this kind of discussion, I have to check myself and think, well, am I just a curmudgeonly older guy who's rather resentful of these younger <laughs> women coming along and st stealing my, my jewels, you know, <laughs> treading in my, my lovely tended field that I've been preparing all these years and they just come and, and eat up all the grass? I have to acknowledge that. There's a possibility. It's just jealousy on my part. I don't think it is I think fully. it might be a bit more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's just jealousy, but yeah, it has to be acknowledged that we, as in this world of writing, people assume that writers are collegiate. They can be collegiate, but they also recognise that they can be competitive. So I, you know, I recognise that for every person who's elevated and gets high profiles in newspapers, it means I have less of a chance myself, perhaps. That's not really why I'm, I'm getting into this debate. I just think I've got to get into this debate because otherwise uh, the debate is skewed or the debate is not as nuanced as it ought to be. Mm -hmm. And I cede ground to people who, who uh, seem to be benefiting from this way that we are highlighting certain kind of polemical black writing at the moment. Well, that seems to be the only game in town, in terms of non-fiction writing anyway. Yeah, and that, that's very interesting because you describe um, a literary cul-de-sac, mm. a reduction effectively in what people are encouraged to write about. Yes. So I was, I was harked back to Bob Marley, who was a great writer, a great lyricist, and he said, yes, we have to sing and write rebel songs, but you also have to sing love songs. And I think that there's a possibility that we're not embracing all of the ranges of life and its myriad experiences that that define a human being, that we're just, uh, as you say, reducing ourselves to being either victims or people who, who shout about being victims. And that's rather tiresome, actually, because it's, it's limiting yourself and it's limiting the kind of conversations, but also it impacts on your own spirit. As a reader, I get tired. I mean, I even get tired of myself, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to sort of remind myself that I, in order to, to 
cherish writing. I have to want to read my own writing. And I'm not going to read my own writing if it's just the continual repetition of misery, continual repetition of this idea that we are in opposition and marginalised and we will be thus forever. Mm. I don't think that's going to be the case. And I don't think we're at that position now. I think things have really opened up and we can be far more expansive and far more experimental in our writing. And again, you have to think about who who you would be writing that for because there's an interesting point Edson Burton makes when you, you when you speak to him about self-flagellation and about yeah. who is buying these books. Yeah, I mean, Edson Burton's a very funny guy and he says something like, there's nothing that certain white readers like than to be flogged and to be told how bad they are and to be go along and to be told how bad they are and then to buy the book, buy the T-shirt. Um, and to sort of celebrate the fact that they are having to suffer because of the transgressions of their ancestors. And there's an element of validity in that, that, that actually, yeah, you should not necessarily be someone who's privileged because of the past transgressions of your ancestors. And to, to make amends for that, perhaps you should you know, think about um, honouring black writers or, or, or paying attention to black writers who, who draw attention to that past. Mm. Uh, but I think you can go too far. And I think actually you, you again almost just tick that box. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a equivalent of I can't be a racist because I've got black friends. You know, I can't be someone who doesn't pay attention to the institutionalised or, or structural racism in, in this country because I read books about I've it. I've read um, Reniedo yeah. Lodge, read, <laughs> so I can't uh, possibly yeah, be racist. I, I've, I've, I've read some books that have uh, touched on this, therefore I've done enough. One of the areas when you're thinking about should be more experimental, science fiction is mm. an area, I think, recently that, that was traditionally very white and very male. Mm. And uh, quite recently, well, I mean, there were, of course, always other people writing, but they weren't always being read. But now there's much more attention paid to all different sorts of science fiction. And there's N.K. Jemisin, I don't know if you know N.K. Mm. Jemisin. I mean, she's just one of them. But the, but that's a, it, it's wonderful stuff. It's just wonderful stuff. She's a wonderful writer. There's ideas coming out mm. on every page. but and, and some of them are about race and history Um, but they're not obviously explicitly about race and history but it's quite clear what's going on and it's also very experimental and sometimes very joyous and very funny and bonkers and all of those things. I agree and and I celebrate that and I look forward to that Um, Edson Burton by the way is a great pioneer of Afrofuturism but I've loved for instance one of the books I loved this year was Blacklisted by Jeffrey Boichi and he uh, on the surface, is writing about race, but in a far funnier way, a uh, far tangential way, and in a way, in a way that disturbs your own sort of lazy thinking and forces you to rethink the whole subject. But it sort of shows you a way that actually you can engage with something like race without without being full on polemical, without being sure and have this titanic certainty that just through the colour of your skin you can't be challenged. I reviewed a book recently. I think it was for you. It might have been for somebody oh. else. Oh, was it someone else? <laughs> we'll kick you straight out if it was for someone else. <laughs> it, was, it was called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. It, again, it showed you that actually there are lots of black people who are racist. So you mm. have to look into your soul and not just assume that you have the high ground now because of the things that have, have happened to your ancestors. I always say to people, think about my name. And my name is Colin Grant. I never really liked the surname but I accept the surname. The surname would have been given to some slave, enslaved person by some slave owner or some overseer in the Caribbean in the 18th century or 19th century. 
But I also have to look at my colour. I'm a brown person, so at some point there's been some white input into the gene pool. So I am both the product of the enslaved and of the slave owner. I am both the product of the victim and the perpetrator. And I think if we keep those notions at our elbow as writers, then we will complicate the story that we tell. And it'd be far richer, more entertaining and and more rigorous, perhaps. Mm. We've moved here towards um, the end of the of the book process. Really, we've we've skipped over to where it's it's time for the critics mm. to pass judgment. Is there a persistent problem just in the the books that you've just mentioned? There is there a persistent problem? Do you think with if you're if you're a writer of color, you're generally going to be asked to review other books by other writers of color? That will be the case, and that has been the case for me. But I kind of embraced that, and I. I also want to remind people that I have an interest in history, in agriculture, in sport, in science. Um, but I just th- think black writing is part of the bigger picture anyway. So why not review the books that come my way if they happen to be black, if they're good? I mean, I don't like to review books that are bad. And I think the problem I've had um, in recent years is there's this expectation, both on the part of the editor in the newspaper, but also on the the part of the publisher, that I will go easy on the black writer, um, that I will give them a free pass. I don't want to do that. I don't think that's good for them. I don't think that's good for the reader. Um, But there's also an expectation that um, I feel that white reviewers find it difficult to critique black writing. And it might be that I'm getting so many black books because they're too scared to give the books to white reviewers because they will be nervous about uh, critiquing the books. We might be in that kind of circle, mm. perhaps. Mm. Yeah. We should ask you about your book. <laughs> it's difficult oh, to carry off that, to pull off that segue. <laughs> very good book. We've yeah. Had about recently. yeah, no, I'm very happy about my book. Um, my book's uh, Homecoming. It's a kind of culmination of my life as a writer in a way. And uh, it's my fifth book. It's my, I'm in my 10th year of publication. Every day I wake up and I think to myself, isn't it fantastic that I might be invited by the TLS to write something or I might be invited by the TLS to be on the podcast? I think it's a mark of your belief in my writing that, that you continue to allow me to write for you. So I'm very pleased with, with, the, with the way that my writing has evolved. But also I'm very pleased to, I feel quite grounded uh, and in, in recent years, I've been thinking about the, the dilemma we have when we tell history through the prism of one person. I mean, I've been guilty of that. I read a book about Marcus Garvey. But history is actually told by myriad people. And I think by telling an oral history of, of Caribbean migration, I'm, I'm complicating the, the narratives that have been told about these Windrush generation people. I'll give you one example. So you might have heard of the phrase, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, when it comes to black people um, in the 40s and 50s finding accommodation. They saw these signs all the time. And I never really thought about it beyond that phrase until I interviewed some of these elderly people. And there's one woman, Waveney Bushell, who's 92 years old now, from Guyana. And she told me that when she was wandering around London looking for accommodation, she saw these signs Every time she saw these signs, it it wounded her. And she says, till today, 60 years later, she can't climb the steps to go and knock on the door if she suspects it can be opened by a white person. The trauma of rejection is 
imprinted in her soul, on her body. And I wanted to get beyond the cliches to, to explore what it is that happens to you when you are humiliated on a on a daily basis. I mean, the people that I interviewed, they had strategies to overcome that. A lot of it was humour. Um, there's a very lovely guy who talks about the fact that he had so much trouble getting work. There was always the same excuse. This man, Mr. Johnson, he was told, oh, you've just arrived just a minute too late. That job has just gone. And uh, Mr. Johnson wrote... The Englishman is the kindest man in the world when he's telling you no. They weathered these storms through humour and ultimately they they might have had microaggressions but they would pull up the collar on their coat and they'd walk on or they'd take a knock on the chin and they'd move on or they'd move around the blockage. And so they, they employed really interesting strategies I think that we would benefit from thinking about even to today. I mean, I, I kind of encourage my kids, I've got three adult kids to think about that. I mean, I, I'll give you one little funny story about my father who enabled me to sound the way that I do by sending me to a private school. He's a Jamaican man from, from Luton, a working class man from Luton. And uh, there were things in his car when we were in the 60s that ought not to be there. He was getting knockoff booths from the local American uh, base. And we'd be stopped by the police quite a lot. We'd be stopped by the equivalent of PC blogs. And my father would promote him immediately. So he became Detective Inspector, sir. <laughs> Chief Constable, sir. And was so moved, he would just wave us on. Um, so I think it's worth paying attention to the strategies that these Caribbean people brought with them in order to get round these various prejudices that they found themselves confronted with on a daily basis. I think there is a clear clear message in that and we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming in, Colin. Thanks for inviting me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When we think about William Wordsworth, a number of associations might immediately come up. 
Emotion recollected in Tranquility, Daffodils, The Lake District, French Revolution, Tintin Abbey, the Romantic Movement, maybe the later, more respectable, conservative establishment figure of the Poet Laureate. We could be forgiven, I think, for not associating him with fun. But this is exactly what the critic and professor of English Matthew Bevis does in one of the books about Wordsworth and how we view him that Andrew Motion has written about this week in the TLS. Andrew joins us on the line from the US. Andrew, many thanks for joining us for a serious talk about how much fun Wordsworth is. It's my pleasure. I wanted to start by asking, why do you think the notion of Wordsworth being fun feels so surprising? Is it, is it because of his kind of rather solemn status as a great poet, or was, was he thought of as not fun right from the start? Well, it's got a lot to do with the status of great poet, no question, but it's it's equally got a lot to do with the things that you were pointing at in your introduction there, that there were certainly people who were his contemporaries who felt that there was something kind of granite-faced about him. Fun sponge, actually, more than sort of fun in, in any interpretation of the word. But when you look more carefully through the evidence of what he was like to be with, Sure, there are a lot of accounts of him being rather solemn and stern and sort of turning away from an idea of jollity, but equally there are plenty of remarks made by people like Hazlitt, for instance, um, about how entertaining he could be and how laughter lines were part of his otherwise rather severe countenance. Um, even Hayden, who in a way I think is in his pictorial presentations of Wordsworth partly responsible for this idea of him as being um, a, a humorless kind of downward-looking, grave-faced person Re- has a report here and there in his own diary of Wordsworth being, not, if not exactly hilariously good company, at least sort of able to laugh along with the best of them. I mean, at the Immortal Dinner, for instance, at which uh, Hayden himself, of course, was with Keats and Lamb. Wordsworth comes out of that as being quite, quite entertaining, in fact. And And it's also true to say that over the years, critics have said that there was some idea of comedy lurking in the poems. So what Matthew Bevis does in his very interesting book is, and as I tried to hint in my piece, was is really not to start from scratch an idea of Wordsworth being fun or being interested in what fun might be, but in excavating a slightly buried line of thought about that element in his personality and in his writing. I don't want to kind of deny the idea has that the book has some originality in it, it certainly does, but it, it's the originality of, a, of an expanded idea rather than a completely new one, I think. How does Matthew Bevis go about, I mean, proving this, this funness? Is it, is it through close readings? Is there, a, is, is there yeah. a worry that, like, with jokes, by explaining it, you know, with close readings, are you, are you pretty much, are you sort of squashing it? <laughs> sure. No, well, that's, always the, that's always the problem with things that are about comedy in any way, isn't it? Well, it's mainly to do with close reading, and it's also to do with looking at how often Wordsworth is interested in constructing narratives, particularly in the early years, in the years when he's writing the lyrical ballads, constructing narratives which, in their sheer oddity, introduce an idea of comedy. I mean, if you think of a poem like Didiot Boy, for instance, which is quite conspicuously interested in ideas of laughter and nonsense where a language that makes sense meets a language that doesn't make sense where patterns of behavior seem to stray from an idea do indeed stray from an idea of what most people would agree is kind of normal um that's a poem which is 
manifestly very interested in ideas of fun as a kind of subversive element in things. And, that, and from a, that sort of base, I think you can look at other poems by Wordsworth, including the whole design, if you like, of um, his greatest long poem, The Prelude, which partake of the same sort of spirit. And the, what I mean when I mention the prelude in that way is to say that, I mean, the prelude is a, an entirely is entirely seriously interested in very serious themes, what it's like to grow up, what it's like to live in time, what it's like to encounter all kinds of very turbulent political and personal events. But it also, at every turn, brings itself in sight of the poem that it's not. It's not Paradise Lost, and it's not either um, The Wraith of the Lock. Those two poems in particular sort of haunt it, and they, they lend a kind of wryness, I think, to Wordsworth's tone, which is very often overlooked. So Matthew Bevis does a good job in reminding us uh, to pay attention to that. The funness is, in a sense, it's, it's a sort of, it's a self-awareness. Yes, it is. It's a sense of what is potentially comic in a touching way, in what one might, at the risk of sounding rather pompous, call the the tragedy of being a human being, of knowing that we live in time and other things associated with that. Do you think it also, does it also come from a, because they had a stated aim, didn't they, in the in the lyrical ballads to try mm. and basically express things more simply, not in inverted sure. commas, poetic language, and there's Quite. an engagement with childhood and um, yes. people speaking very naturally, and as they say explicitly, the middle and lower classes, the way that, yeah, that people who were not poets spoke. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that is the kind of the written on the tin aim of the lyrical ballads. That's what lies at the heart of what Wordsworth writes in the, the introduction to the lyrical ballads, which, as we know, doesn't come out in the first edition of the poem, but is sort of inseparable from it now. And if we think about what Wordsworth and other romantic poets, what Wordsworth preeminently did in order to introduce into the common culture an idea of childhood's value... Um, which these days we absolutely take for granted, but is a sort of profoundly original introduction of his, I think. Um, I mean, his and other people of that time. That, by its very nature, means that we have to quite quickly start thinking about the ways that children talk in a language that is not akin to adult language, in their relish for comedy, in their sense of the ridiculous, in their sort of free associating sideways stepping way of behaving and once again a poem like The Idiot Boy illustrates that very well mm, and, and The Idiot Boy also slightly it overturns some assumptions doesn't it you think one thing might happen it would be awful and then not to be a Absolutely. spoiler but it's a happy ending yes, so. it is it is in a way I mean, it's, it is a happy ending but it's it's, a, it's still a pretty enigmatic one I, yes I think. yeah um, I mean I clearly one could overdo this and and I'm not trying to say, and Matthew Bevers isn't trying to say, that Wordsworth is really a sort of great comic poet in disguise. It's more a question of trying to find out what role his sense of the ridiculous, the absurd, the childlike, sometimes the childish, um, plays in our apprehension of life's seriousnesses. Mm. Is, is, is this funness, is it, is, it, is it part of a general attempt to make Wordsworth speak to people now I mean I'm just thinking in terms of, of teaching you start with a, a, right. a story from your own teaching is it very hard to communicate you know the radicalness and what Wordsworth is 
now? Well, is... that's a very good question. I, whenever I'm teaching Wordsworth, which is as often as I reasonably can, because I like him so much, I think people do come. I mean, here and in the US, and and it was my experience of doing this too in the in the UK, come to him with a sense that there is this sort of absolutely unflinching, unsmiling person who's writing these poems, which, yes, they might partake of the radical mood of the time, but somehow that that urgency has got lost over the years. So to get to take people back into the revolutionary mood of the time and to point out what Wordsworth does, not just in relation to rethinking ideas of childhood, but of course also rethinking ideas of what landscape might mean to us, and more importantly than anything, what the idea of having a self might mean to us. I mean, these are absolutely core things to our experience of being modern people. Um, and Wordsworth, more than any other poet, more than any other English poet anyway, puts them on our map. Um, I always feel when I'm reading pre-romantic poetry that it's like being um, on, I mean, you're trying to get to Italy and you're on the sort of European side of the Alps and then you read Wordsworth and you're over the Alps and you're in this completely other country and that other country is ours. Um, that's more or less where we live now. Do you mean a kind of I recognise this? This is a yes. this is this, this is our we, landscape. We we are like this, and that's that's his sort of great triumphant achievement, I think. Mm. Um, you, there's another book that you reviewed by Adam Nicholson, The Making of Poetry, and yes. he physically retraces the steps, I think, of, of Wordsworth yes, and Coleridge right. when they were establishing their friendship and planning this radical right. new approach. It's a very different right. sort of book, though, isn't it? Yes, it's. I mean. It's um, more written for a mainstream audience than the Matthew Bevis book is, which is not to say that Matthew Bevis's book is sort of hideously obscure. It's not. It's actually quite jauntily written. Yeah, the Adam Nicholson book is, is much more for the, for the general reader. Um, he, in a sort of Richard Holmes-derived way, mingles his own thoughts about Wordsworth and Coleridge's relationship with footstepping his way through the Somerset countryside in which they were formulating their ideas which go into the lyrical ballads it's written with tremendous kind of brio and excitement and that in its way of course does a lot to feed into our idea of Wordsworth as a, as a recognizable to us figure and the idea of his being fun is implicit in that so the books even though they are very different in style and treatment do converge on a similar sort of point. And they're about youth and the kind of beginning of something exactly. and the excitement. Yeah. I saw him referred to somewhere as, or it was the the, the first preface to the lyrical ballad, someone called it a kind of punk manifesto which is push. I mean <laughs> yeah. it might be pushing it a little bit. But. A little bit. <laughs> yes. but, it, but that seems to be on the right side of the argument about these things. I mean, if a bit of overstating the case means that we pay attention to things in Wordsworth, things in his character and in his poems that are often too much neglected then so be it mm. well on on that point there's a third book um by tim fulford which restates the the importance of the yeah. of the later work is that yeah. is that a convincing read well you want it to, i want it to be because <laughs> the idea that i mean again the received idea of wordsworth is in about 1815 perhaps even a bit earlier than that he loses his mojo and he never gets it back and because he doesn't die until 1850 that is a very very long time in which he's writing quite a lot um, and the idea that n virtually none of that is any good is very depressing. And that's the idea that I grew up with. I mean, readers of my generation grew up with, and I think that generations younger than mine have a similar sort of idea of it. It's an idea which has been rather cemented by the great Cornell edition of Wordsworth, which directs attention 
not exclusively, but very energetically towards the early part of Wordsworth's... You quote John Ashbery as well, don't you? Um, Wordsworth's dreadful poetic dotage went on drearily from 1807 to 1850, the longest dying of a major poetic genius. Yes, I mean, that that is a very kind of handy summary of the general view about these things. So the idea that we've all got that wrong and that we're going to find, what is it, sort of 40 years' worth of wonderful stuff lying there and all we've got to do is just blow the dust off it and, and lo and behold. And realise that I he mean, was joking. <laughs> that, that is a very appealing idea. And for those of us who, who love Wordsworth as I do, I mean, it, it is very attractive. But I have to say that even though I think this book is is written extremely diligently and, and is very clever in all sorts of ways, when it comes to the quotation of the poems which back up the case that he wants to make for it, I far too often found myself thinking, actually, maybe... Unfortunately, the Ashbury summary is more or less right. I mean, there there are passages where you feel that the mojo is being seized again, but by and large, they're very dutiful, the later poems, I think, and they just don't have the sort of spring and the sense of self-surprise about them that the earlier stuff does. And one of the reasons for that, I suspect, has to do with fun and that what we've been trying, what I was been trying to say in the earlier part of our conversation about how in the early poems, it's very difficult to make a clean separation between gravity and and a sense of comedy. It seems as though in the later part of Wordsworth's long life, when he was writing, as it were, somberly, it was just somber. In other words, that tension between the opposite poles disappears from the work to its detriment. We were wondering, um, as a kind of overview in, in that sense, how do you feel he sits among the romantics? Do you think people are... Is, is he still read? Is he still talked about? Or is Keats, like, the um, top romantic? Because, you know, he's <laughs> well, got lots been more... films yeah. about him. <laughs> he's got well, that whole kind of cult of sad glamour. Yes, he does have the, I mean, Keats, Keats, of course, does have the cult of sad glamour. Um, <laughs> I mean, I find it so difficult to get past my own feelings about Wordsworth, so maybe I'm wrong about this, but I mean, for me, absolutely, without question, Wordsworth is the great romantic poet, and um, one of the two best poets there have ever been in the English language, the other being Milton, and it's it's true to say that about the Keats glamour, but you don't get Keats without Wordsworth, mm. um, and you don't get so many of the other poets that we take to our hearts in the UK. There was, I mean, when people were getting excited about Edward Thomas a few years ago, people kept saying that, and I think borrowing Ted Hughes's phrase, that Edward Thomas was the, the father of us all, um, Ted Hughes said in that rather sort of peculiar gendered way. Mm. Um, but, That's a different actually, question for another day, that one. <laughs> well, in, indeed. But I mean, there was quite a lot to say about all that, but that was the phrase he used anyway. But actually, you don't get a glimmer of Edward Thomas without Wordsworth. So if we're really going to be talking about fathers, and if we must talk about fathers, <laughs> then then it's going to be, it's Wordsworth for that sort of way of writing. And so you, you find that you go back to Wordsworth again and again in a way that you don't to other poets. I do. Actually, much m- more than any other poet that I read, I've, um, and I have a very sort of crude way of thinking about this to myself, which is that there are, there are massive poets I don't much like. There are a few poets that I like a lot, I mean really a lot, and there's a much smaller number of poems that I feel that in some sense I'm in love with, <laughs> and I'm just, and I want to know everything about them. It doesn't mean that I'm uncritical of them, but I just want, want to know absolutely everything about them, and I want their poems to live inside me, and that applies to him more than anybody else. 
Wonderful. I can't think of a better recommendation, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very well. much for joining <laughs> okay. us. Thank you. That's Thank you, pleasure. Andrew. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Very nice to hear you. Bye-bye. Finally, it's a long time since we've ended the show with a new poem from the pages of the TLS read by the poet him or herself. The last time might in fact have been with Andrew Motion. This week, Kate Miller has contributed Turn Down, a poem steeped in atmosphere, and she joins us on the line to read it now. Hello, Kate. Hello. I mean, there's clearly a story behind this beautiful poem. There's a really strong sense of, of place and of, of relationships. I wonder if you could enlighten us a little before you read it for us. Sure. It's a poem about my grandmother, who was a writer, not a very successful writer, but quite successful as a broadcaster. And I didn't get to know much about her until after her death when she left all her unpublished manuscripts and I read them and thought I should do something with them. As a girl, I had read her letters, as as the poem makes awfully clear. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, um, let's let's have the poem then. Sure. Turned down. I slept once in that bed beside a wharf of papers from the worlds she travelled in between the wars. After a welcome of few words, a dose of brandy for the out of sorts, she sat me on her turned down single bed. The curtains pulled against a dazzling afternoon. Green folds silenced what we might have said. Twenty hours on, I drew them back, a hint of camphor in the velvet, but no sign of her, except outside the bed of spiky dahlias supposed to wheel in fire wheels like Flowers of childhood in Bengal she claimed were so big, so densely grown, you never saw their stems. Austere, the light, the room, the narrow bed I lay in to untie her writing case, unfold telegrams, dry snips of type, a child sent abroad, reports of missing, dead, love declared, love scorned, in tiny script, an envelope, not known at this address her story, and my father's, and his father's before him, the long warp lines of ink. That was beautiful. That was Kate Miller reading her poem, Turned Down. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Kate Miller, Colin Grant and Andrew Motion. We'll be back next week with an arts history special in which Tom Phillips tells us about a lifetime immersed in the work of William Blake and we cover new exhibitions of Gauguin and Rembrandt, not to mention a whole host of other things, including an abandoned novel by Jane Austen, now revived for the stage. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.